How's everybody doing today? Good? Good, good. My name is Mike, Mike Bongo. I'm on staff here at the church, and I'm going to share the Word of God with you here in a moment. I just want to take a second and uh, comment about that video. I'm glad we did an encore presentation of that. If you were here last week, we played that video, and I watched it from uh, Philadelphia on the live stream, and I had to email Victoria immediately and say, that video was spectacular. I mean, just great production value, the things she said, the images of the kids, and it, and it made me long for children's ministry because I've been away all summer, and uh, normally I serve down there in some capacity. Uh, I have strong roots in children's ministry. This uh, ministry, this subject is very near and dear to my heart. I started as a volunteer there. Uh, then I, I did Victoria's job for three years as the director down there, and now I, I go back as a volunteer. And, you know, and I, I just want to encourage you, uh, maybe a particular group of you who are like, you know, I could serve in children's ministry. I could, but I just don't want to. I mean, can we just be real? I, I'm a straight shooter. You guys know that about me. I mean, maybe you're like, ah, you know, I, it's just not for me. Well, I, let me just tell you this. When I've uh, decided to volunteer and I get on the schedule, there's some mornings I come in and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm downstairs with the first graders. And I'm just not in the mood. Again, I'm just being honest. But I'll tell you this, when I go down there, I'm like, I'm going to do this. I start engaging with uh, the kids and talking about race cars and princesses. And yes, I can talk about princesses, um, talk about sports, all kinds of things. I never leave the ministry the way I went in. If I went in like, oh, you know, I just, it's a good work. I know I'm feeling a need. I leave there energized, excited, just joyful because these kids bring it out of you. So, you know, l let me just add my two cents to the video. It doesn't need my help, but there you go. Take it for what it's worth. It's a good work. Uh, it glorifies God. It meets a need here, and you get to invest in some of the people that you're sitting next to. You get to know their kids uh, really well as you engage with them in children's ministry. So enough said on that. I said we're going to get to the Word of God. Let's do that. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week in the book of Romans. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take that out. We will have the verses on the screen. Romans chapter 3 is where we are. So if you would stand, please, in honor of hearing God's Word. We left off last week in verse 26. We're going to pick it up in verse 27 and finish the chapter. Reading from the ESV, Romans 3, 27, says this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Thank you. You may be seated. I'd like to welcome everybody who's joining us on the live stream as well. So, back in the... Uh, 1980s, when I was coming up, 
I grew up in the uh, city of Syracuse, New York, from the Cuse, and I went to an elementary school there by the name of Chestnut Hill. We were the Chestnut Hill Cheetahs. And that's cheetahs, not cheaters, uh, like we're from Boston. No, so we were the cheetahs, and I played on the basketball team there. And I played alongside my really good friend by the name of Jim Kilpatrick. Now, Jim had natural athletic ability. I was an okay player, but he was an exceptional player. So he had this natural athletic ability, God-given talent, but he also had a unique opportunity. His mom was the personal assistant for Jim Beheim, the head coach of the then and now Syracuse Orangemen is what they were known back in the day. They're now just the Syracuse Orange. But his mom, having that role at the university, uh, being the personal assistant for Jim Beheim, afforded Jim some wonderful opportunities. He was the team's ball boy. He traveled with the team. He got to hang out with some of the best ballers in the country, uh, players that went on to the NBA and had great careers. You know, people like uh, Pearl Washington, Sherman Douglas, Derek Coleman, Ronnie Cycli. This was, this was just a part of Jim's life. And like I said, he was a great player, and he carried our elementary school team. I was maybe the second best player. Maybe. I don't know. I don't want to boast. You don't want to talk about boasting today, given this text. So, I don't know. But I, I also had a unique opportunity. I got to do the homeroom announcements at school the next day. Whenever there was an athletic event, I kind of, I was like the sports guy. Uh, guy, I was like in fourth grade, a uh, kid, right? I, I would do the sports recap of any events that took place the night before. And so you could hear my voice during homeroom coming over the loudspeaker. And I'll give you a sampling of what the announcements should have sounded like. They should have sounded something like this. Now in sports, the Chestnut Hill Cheetahs faced the Long Branch Lions in last night's basketball game. For our Chestnut Hill Cheetahs, Jim Kilpatrick led the way with 45 points, and Mike Bongo chimed in with 10 as the Cheetahs defeated the Lions by the score of 70 to 65. That, that's what it should have sounded like. But I got to write the script. So I had complete creative control. Often this is more like what the announcement sounded like. Now in sports, the Chestnut Hill Cheetahs faced the Long Branch Lions in last night's basketball game. And for our Chestnut Hill Cheetahs, Mike Bongo, the heart and soul of the team, <laughs> went for double figures, scoring a critical 10 points, grabbed seven rebounds, had five assists and two blocks, and basically locked down the other team defensively as he inspired the Cheetahs to go on to defeat the Lions by a score of 70 to 65. And by the way, Jim Kilpatrick chimed in with 45 points. <laughs> I like to put my own little spin on the events of the game. Never mind that it was a complete distortion of reality, like a little self-gloss. And, and I think we like to do this. We, we like to gloss ourselves. We, we want to make ourselves look good. I mean, even this morning, I got up, I, I, I took a shower, I brushed my teeth, I, I do comb my hair, believe it or not, it's true. You know, I, I try to put on a nice shirt, I want to look good. But when there's an achievement in and around us as well, we're right there to take credit. 
Maybe we deserve a little bit of credit, but we want more. Maybe we deserve no credit, and we're there looking for credit somehow, some way. I think it's no different with salvation. With salvation, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, something has been accomplished in your life. There's an achievement. It's been made. Make no mistake about it. It's true in your life. You may not know the term for it. You may or may not know that you have been justified, but that's a reality. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, justification has taken place in your life. And this is what we looked at last weekend as, as Evan, uh, who I thought did a fantastic job last week, just uh, going through verses 21 through 26 in Romans 3. If you have not watched that or listened to it, I encourage you to go out to our YouTube channel, check it out. Uh, but we're, we're picking up right where he left off, and we're going to finish the chapter here because Paul, he has a lot more to say about this great doctrine of justification. In fact, the doctrine is so glorious, he goes on for two more chapters exploring justification. So any loose ends that I don't tie up or, or any things that I don't develop well enough here today, we're going to have many more weekends to discuss justification. It is that important. And better preachers than I can come along and clean up any messes I might make here today. Okay, so justification is a critical doctrine in the New Testament, and, I, and I'm so excited to, to talk uh, to you about it today. In what we just read there, in those verses, that section of Scripture breaks down nicely into three subsections. And in each of those subsections are an, is an implication or an effect of being justified. So let me, let me go ahead and remind you of a, a good definition of justification. Uh, we, we, we got one last week. I, I kind of cobbled together my own definition, just kind of looking at it from different angles. And, and I wanted to provide something that was just super thorough because it is such an important doctrine. Here's what I came up with. Justification is the one-time act of God whereby he justly pardons all of our sins by imputing or ascribing our sin to Christ, and in exchange we receive his righteousness, such that God accepts us as righteous in his sight, and he declares us not guilty. Not based upon anything that we have done, but by what Jesus has done. Justification isn't something that you work on, that you develop. No. It is something that God has accomplished, and we simply take hold of it by faith. And I would add the word alone. We take hold of it by faith alone. And yes, we will get to that perpetually debated phrase, faith alone. So what are the three implications in the text? The three effects, I think they're these. Number one, there's no room for boasting. None. There's no other plan of salvation and number three, there's no overthrowing of the law. And we'll seek to develop those as we proceed here this morning. So the first subject on the table here, verse 27, boasting. Paul brings in boasting. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, I think this notion of, of human boasting being excluded, I don't think it ought to hit our ears as some sort of groundbreaking truth. 
Like, whoa, that just came out of nowhere. My mind is blown. I don't think that should be the case. Just follow the logic. What do we say justification is? It's something that God has done. If he has done it apart from our effort, why would anyone have anything to boast about? I mean, it's just that follows logically. For example, if, if I was to suddenly drop to the floor here and, and have a cardiac arrest, I, I'd like to think, I, I hope, I'm hoping, don't make assumptions here, I hope somebody would come to my aid. Preferably somebody with CPR experience, okay? You come up, you know, if you got the little mask thing with the tube to put over the mouth, like, um, I'm, uh, that would be good. Um, the pandemic's kind of turned me into a germaphobe, so if two people come up, one has the mask thing and one doesn't, like, I want the person with the mask, just should this happen, okay? But you come up and, and you start giving me air, and, and, and doing this, right? And you're going to work on me. And let's say I come to, and I, and I come to, and the first thing out of my mouth is, man, did you see the way I pulled through? I mean, did you see? I mean, I, you provided the air, but I took it in. It went into the lungs and just, just invigorated my whole body such that I was brought back. And, you know, and, and man, you, you did, I took those compressions like a champ. You got to admit, Right? I mean, that would be absurd to say that sort of thing. I should have nothing to say to you except thank you. I ought to thank you profusely for coming to my aid. Right? And it's no different with God. None. It's the same thing. Let me revisit verse 24 from last week. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He breathed on our dry bones. He did the heart work to bring us to spiritual life. Right? When we were dead in our sins and trespasses, this is what God has done. Therefore, boasting is excluded. Not by a law of works, Paul says, but by the law, or some translations say principle, by the principle of faith. And it made me think, all right, why is it that faith plays the role that it does in the New Testament, in the the whole Bible? Why is faith so important? Why did God choose faith as the instrument by which we take hold of justification? And And I think there's many reasons. We could talk a long time about this, but I thought I would talk about it in terms of boasting. It kind of juxtaposed those two things. How, how, did they, how did they interplay, faith and boasting? And I came up with three reasons why I think God chose faith. Faith, or simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, stands in opposition to human achievement. The, the two stand apart. He's done the work. We simply reap the fruit of his labor. Faith exalts what God's accomplished, not what we have done. What have we earned for ourselves? Paul gave us three solid chapters. I mean, it, uh, he goes right into the, towards the, the middle, latter portion of chapter 3, saying, you know what, from, from 118 on, you've earned for yourself what? Condemnation. That's the, all those weeks we talked about that stuff. That, that's what we've earned for ourselves. 
Paul has made that abundantly clear. So one, faith stands in opposition to human achievement. Number two, faith in God is an admission that we can't meet God's righteous requirements in and of ourselves. We just can't do it. Therefore, we need help. See, when my wife and I, we, we made the decision to, uh, to go ahead with uh, brain surgery for our son, Nate, that was a, a decision that we made because we thought it would be good for him. It would be something that, that he needs, but we couldn't do it ourselves, right? Like, I, I'm not going to try brain surgery in my basement, okay? I, I need to go to a hospital, uh, talk with a neurosurgeon, and I have to say to another man, go ahead, cut into my son's head, start snipping around in the brain, such that he would not have any more seizures. That took a lot of faith. I use a comparable word, trust. I had to trust this man. Why? Because I couldn't do it. If I could do it, then I would just go ahead and do it. And, and I did not contribute in any way to the 12 hours of work that happened in that OR. I didn't. And, 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 and if it was something I could do my, myself, there would be no need for any faith in another. And needless to say, me performing brain surgery ranks right up there with me keeping the law of God. Like, I am equally incapable of accomplishing either one. I don't even know which one I'd have a better chance at. Zero. <laughs> Zero for both. Can't keep the law, can't perform brain surgery. So faith becomes necessary for someone else to do what we can't. And lastly, faith is rooted in our relationship with God over and against a performance for God. Let me say that again. Faith, it finds its root in a relationship. God is big on relationships. A relationship with him versus performing for him. See, God is so kind to set it up this way. He really is. I hope you don't see God as some kind of taskmaster. You know, he's just, do this, don't do that. Because as you read your Bible, there's commands. Do this, don't do that. But the law is good. If he says, do this, you know why he tells you? It's good for you. And if he says, don't do that, don't do it because it's bad for you. And we ought to look at it that way, not like, you know, if it was a works righteous system, you just white knuckle it out, man. Like, all right, I got to do it because this is how I get him to love me. No, he loves you already because he sent his son into this world to die for your sins. Right? That's, that's the John 3.16. And Jesus coming into this world, he's the one who fulfills the righteous requirements of the law such that 2 Corinthians 5.21 might become manifest in our lives. What does that say? For our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It's rooted in a relationship with him, not performance for him. And we take hold of all of this by faith apart from works of the law. And that brings us to verse 28. And I, and I want to camp here for a minute. This verse is critical. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That verse right there has been at the center of a much-debated topic for a long time. And we need to spend a few minutes on it here before we get to the other two points. If you're unfamiliar, the debate is this. Are we justified by faith, or are we justified by faith alone? And so it centers around that word alone. That's where the focus lies. And this was the central question of the Protestant Reformation, and I have no illusions here that, you know, in the next five minutes, I'm going to be able to resolve a 500-plus year dispute, okay? I would need at least 10 minutes. Just I'm just playing. But let me just, let me kind of frame the key points for you and then offer a few thoughts on the subject that it's in support of faith alone. I do think that's what the Bible teaches. Again, not everybody agrees, hence the debate. So the verse in question, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We define justification already. I think we need a definition of works of the law. And this is right here, <clears throat> excuse me, this is right here where, <clears throat> excuse me, a big part of the debate begins with that definition. My understanding, a work of the law is anything that one does to be made right with God other than believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything you insert in there would be a work of the law. So the fundamental question here is, is someone justified by what they do along with faith in Jesus? Because both sides of the debate say you need to have faith in Jesus. But is it faith in Jesus alone? Or is it faith in Jesus plus? Fill in the blank. Insert your work of choice, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, washing hands, dietary restrictions, baptism, communion, giving to the poor, feeding the hungry, helping little old ladies across the street. Whatever it is you want to put in there, that would be a work of the law. You're doing a good work. And the Bible talks a lot about works. I think for many Protestants, we, we just kind of recoil a little bit. Somebody brings up works. We're like, quick, oh, we're saved by faith. And we just don't even want to like, the, the, the word works makes us bristle and we're afraid to engage with it. God is pro-works. The Bible has a lot to say about doing good works. And we're going to look at a couple of those passages in a moment. But a key text that surrounds this debate, when you think about works, many of our minds go to James chapter 2. So let's go there for just a second. <clears throat> James 2, I'm going to read a single verse, which is always dangerous. Why? You don't know what was said before. You don't know what was said after. So I'm going to go ahead and do that, even though that's not a good idea, because this is how it goes in the debate. People throw out their proof texts. Single verse, deal with it. Whoa, hold on, hold on. Let's open the Bible. Let's look at the whole context. We're not going to do that here. So uh, I'm just going to show you this is what it looks like. Somebody will say, so also faith by itself, this is James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So again, if you look at that single verse, you would say, James, it seems like James is saying that it's faith you know, plus good works. you got to do good works to be justified. It's not by faith alone. And that might produce a simple equation in the mind. 
right? It would be faith plus works equals justification. Now, people on the other side, they would say, ah, you know, that's an oversimplification of our view. doesn't recognize the nuance. I understand that. But I think when you get down to brass tacks, that's what it comes down to. And faith plus works equals justification is definitely not faith alone, right? Because it's faith plus works, right? Math, that means basic math, right, guys? So that perspective, I think, rightly understands that works play a part in the Christian life. Again, God talks about works. Works do play a role in the Christian life, but their equation is off. And I'll, I'll try to show you in one, one way. There's many ways to approach this. And I didn't want to um, go back and look at the verses coming uh, that came before what we're looking at today or extend into chapter 4 because somebody else is going to preach that. And I didn't want to kind of, you know, tread on their territory, for lack of a better word. Uh, but let, again, go back to verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. What, what are those words, grace and gift? Grace, unmerited favor. What does that mean? You get something that you don't deserve. That, that, that's grace. And that's, that's, that's how we're justified, he says there. And again, we looked at all of Romans 3. I guess that's one verse. But again, go back and, and, and watch the sermon that Evan delivered last weekend. Grace, receiving something you don't deserve. Gift, very similar. Gift is you get something, you, don't, you didn't earn it. You didn't do anything for it. It's purely a gift. That's why when you do, you do a job, you work, you deserve a wage. Right? You, your, your employer doesn't come to you on payday and say, hey, I got a gift for you. It's your paycheck. You'd be like, what are you talking about? That's no gift. I earned that. I put in 40 plus hours here this week. That's my due. You owe that to me. What are you talking about gift? Now, if he says, here's your paycheck because you earned it, and here's a potted plant, okay, that's the gift. Hey, thanks. Right? See the difference? But Romans 4, Romans 4, again, let's, let's just dip in there real quick. My apologies to whoever's preaching this, uh, but this is just so critical to the whole thing about justification by faith alone. Romans 4.4 4 says this. Now to the one who works, okay, this is the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. See, again, working wages, not a gift, it's his due. It's what he's owed. That's kind of the negative. And then the very next verse, verse 5, Paul presents the positive. He says, and to the one who does not work. See, see the, the, the opposite here? He's, now he's talking about, there's a perfect parallel here in the sentence structure. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. The, the ungodly doesn't sound like someone who is overflowing with good works. I don't think that's how you earn the label ungodly, right? Justifies the ungodly. His faith, the ungodly one, is counted as righteousness. See, what we need to do, when, whenever you encounter this kind of thing and you got something going on here in Romans 3 and then you got James 2, we want to look at the, the clear exposition. Paul is laying out justification here in Romans. He's not doing that in James. He's actually doing something else. But what you do is you interpret the unclear verses in light of the clear. 
And Paul is crystal clear here in Romans 3 and especially in chapter 4. And then when we do that, we can make the necessary adjustment to our equation. And instead of faith plus works equals justification, it's actually faith equals justification plus works. God justifies us. We're now in a right relationship with him by faith. And from that point on, we begin to do good works that demonstrate that we have been justified. See, people put works, imagine a tree. They put works down at the root when works are actually the fruit of justification. And so what, is the, what does the Bible say about this interplay here between faith and works and believing and doing things? Ephesians 2 it gets quoted all the time, and I, and I did not put it, we don't have it up on the screen, but we need to go there, because I thought, well, we cover this all the time, and uh, I think we're, we're very familiar with it, but I didn't want to make that assumption. So if you turn in your Bibles to the right, uh, go to Ephesians 2, what gets quoted all the time, I guarantee you've heard these verses before. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's that boasting again. And I would, dare I say, we, have, we should really never quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without bringing in verse 10. It takes a few seconds, but it completes the whole picture. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's, the, there's both at play. That's a very popular passage. Let me give you one that's not as popular, but it's, it's probably one of my favorite sections of the Bible. It's Titus 3. There's so much going on in Titus 3, verses 4 through 8. I do have these on the screen, but if uh, you want to turn there, go ahead and do that. But Titus 3... Again, we're looking at this, this whole justified by grace and, then, and, and works. What, how do they factor in? Titus 3, verses 4 through 8 say this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, there it is again, look at the continuity of scripture. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Works do have their place. They just don't contribute to justification. They are the demonstration of it. I find Martin Luther's famous quote to be extremely helpful. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, I invoked James chapter 2, and for some of you who are familiar with this, you're like, okay, you know, you kind of looked at verse uh, 17, but you didn't get to the granddaddy of them all, 
right? Seven verses later, it, it, this is how the, the, the dialogue goes. If you believe what I'm saying, the Bible says that we're saved by faith alone and you engage with somebody who doesn't share that perspective, this is how they will put it to you. They will say it like this. They'll say, okay, you're, you're putting forth faith alone. Do you know that the only time in the Bible where you have that word faith and that word alone paired together is a rejection of faith alone? That, that's how they'll say it, because that, that has a lot of rhetorical flair. And what's the verse they're talking about? James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, single verse in isolation. Now, at this point, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Okay? The bad news is we don't have time to deal with that right there. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not like, oh, let's just uh, not, not deal with it. Uh, we just don't have time. I don't want to give it the short shrift. It's that important, okay? That's the bad news. The good news is we've already dealt with it. About five years ago, I took an entire sermon, and it was a family worship service, and I pitted Romans 3.28 against James 2.24. And, you know, I made it look like they were actually enemies, but in reality, they're friends, and they fit together just nicely when we understand what's going on in each portion of Scripture. So I don't think it's on our Living Water website. I don't think the sermons go back that far. I'm almost positive. But you can find it at my website, which is bringingtruth.com. If you want to dig deeper on this, you want to see how that, those get harmonized, I do the best I can. It's a family worship. There's kids there. Like I even use Legos to demonstrate it, okay? So, you know, if you want to check that out, uh, a little plug for my website. It's called Faith That Works. It's under the sermons section. All right, so while, while I'm plugging things, we have another family worship coming up next weekend, Lord willing, Labor Day weekend. We're going to look at two bears mauling 42 youngsters. So you're going you're to want to come out for that, okay? We preach the entire Bible here at Living Water. All right, let's get back to our original three points. Point one was what? No room for boasting and justification. Point number two, God has no other plan of salvation other than justification. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul's saying here, how many gods are there? There's only one God. He's the God of the Jews, and he's the God of the Gentiles. And to make his point here, he invokes something that every good Jew is going to be well familiar with, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema means here. It's the first word in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul's point here in Romans 3 is that, is that God doesn't have a plan just for the chosen people of God, for the Jew, and he has no concern for the Gentile, or he has some other plan for the Gentile. No, it's the same plan. One God, one plan of salvation. For everyone, Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, Roman, Greek, male, female, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, Educated, uneducated, rich, poor, black, white, short, tall, doesn't matter who you are. You come to God by one way, and one way only. It is through Christ, by faith. 
And this right here destroys something called pluralism. Religious pluralism says that all religious worldviews are equally valid. In terms of salvation, it's all roads lead to God. For you, Christian, Jesus, he's just fine. You'll do all right with Jesus. Jesus will get you. He'll get you there. But the Muslim, he's got a different way. And it's okay for him, too. That's true for him. Never mind that the two contradict. The two can't coexist. Let's not let the facts or logic get in the way here. Okay, or the, the Hindu or the Buddhist, on down the line. Whatever their view is, you can even make up your own. It's your truth, and it's true for you. Well, what Paul is sharing here and what the Bible, I mean, you can't square that with the Scriptures. You just can't. You know the verses. Jesus said, on the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a universal negative. No one. So either Jesus is lying or he's wrong or there's no other way. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, and, and that gets thought of as bigoted. I mean, we're hallelujah here today. Great, amen, I'm with you. But out in society... You know, to another, a person who doesn't share the Christian worldview, that's hateful. That's hate speech right there. That's, you're bigoted, right? And, and this, is why, this is why we brought uh, Greg Kokel here earlier this year. His book, Tactics, I, I've talked a lot about it. He has a tactic called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I like that title. And, he, and the, the, the way the tactic works is when Jesus has said something, don't go saying, well, here's what I believe. It might be what you believe, but just say, this is what Jesus said. Like, if you got beef with exclusivity, don't take it up with me. Don't kill the messenger. He's the one who said it. It's God in his word that says that. Let, let Jesus shoulder that burden. Because really, they, you, you, they, their problem is not they need to agree with you. They need to agree with God, Right? And so we let him shoulder it. What a friend we have in Jesus. So later in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Paul goes on to say this. Therefore, as one trespass, that would be Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, there's not multiple acts, it's one act of righteousness leads to, here's the word, justification and life for all men. That doesn't mean everybody's saved. That's not teaching universalism. All, all those groups that I just mentioned. One way, one way. Last point, point number three. Uh, there's no overthrowing of the law. Let's look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow, some translations say nullify, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And I was reading some commentaries because I didn't know exactly what Paul is saying there in verse 31. And I, I read something from a really smart theologian that I just did not want to hear. He, he said, uh, 
He goes, I've read a lot of books and articles on this subject, and I find that this verse, to interpret this verse in light of the, the whole theological realm in which it sits, I find it very difficult to get the right understanding. And I was like, great. What chance do I have? Uh, but nevertheless, this is complicated. There's a lot of ways to understand this. Uh, let's start here. Why does Paul even talk about overthrowing the law? Why even, why even bring it up? Well, I think it's because he's been accused of doing just that. The charge of antinomianism is being leveled against Paul. Anti, against, namas, the law, against the law. Paul, you're speaking against the law. We love the law. What are you doing? Well, why would they say that? I think you just have to go back about 10 or 11 verses and look at what Paul has said here. Verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The next verse, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from works of the law, apart from the law. Verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The critic is like, Paul, you seem to be really down on the law. What gives? If we can't be made right with God by the law, then what good is it? Are you getting rid of it? And how does Paul respond? The strongest way possible. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's what people you know, try to understand. What did he mean by uphold the law? Like I said, I think there might be, he might mean multiple things. I will give you one, that I do, one thing that I do think he means. The law here in verse 31, as I understand it, refers to the demands of the law. I think that fits with the context of Romans 3. And so I would say that the law and its demands are upheld when we, those who have been justified, when we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Being justified, we now have the capacity or the potential to actually obey the law the way it was intended. We have the power. We got, we got God's Holy Spirit that, that, that empowers us to obey it. You know, prior to coming to Christ, it, everything we do is tainted with sin. We're, 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 our motives are mixed up. We're doing things for the wrong reason. Now that you're a believer in Jesus, you open your Bible and you say, oh, this is a delight. It, it may be hard, but I delight in the law and I want to follow it. Not in a way that earns us anything with God. Again, you don't become more justified. It's not even possible. It's like being more pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not, okay? You're either justified or you're not. So it earns us no favor with God. Rather, our obedience after being justified is seen again as the fruit or evidence that we have obtained the righteousness of God through true saving faith in Jesus Christ. See, we get right with God first by faith alone, he changes us, right? He makes us new. You're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. You got the new heart with new desires, new longings, new affections. And we begin to love the things that God loves and we begin to hate the things that God hates. Not perfectly, and I would say not even immediately, now we're dipping into sanctification. This is, this is the process where we grow and we look more like Christ. 
But when we struggle with temptation, why is it a temptation? It's because we know the right thing to do. And, and we know, you know, say it's something you're not supposed to do. And it maybe the, the Bible, like it says in some cases, God hates it. Yet we love it. Well, that's the temptation. That's the struggle. So it doesn't happen immediately. Uh, but you begin to move in that direction. And so increasing measure, the more we walk with him, the more the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And the reason I land here is because this is where Paul goes later in Romans. Fast forward to chapter 8, and he, uh, he says here in verse 3, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Again, no, no one's saved through keeping the law. No one can do it. By, send, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I think that's one of the reasons Paul says we uphold the law. We uphold it. We don't get rid of the law. Still, it still has a purpose. So let's just recap here. According to the Apostle Paul, the three implications or effects of being justified by God. One, no boasting. Two, there's no other plan of salvation. Three, no overthrowing of the law. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, how do we, how do we apply what we have uh, looked at here thus far? Well, if you're tracking with me, you have some application already. If you're boasting, quit it. You have nothing to boast over. Okay, it's God's work. If you're going to boast, boast in Christ. Recognize there's one plan of salvation. You know, if somebody says, I got, a, I got a way to get to God and it conflicts with what God has said, you can't just say, well, you got your way, I got my way, say la vie, we're all good. No, no, we engage with that person and we say, you know, let me, let me tell you what God's word has said. God cannot lie. So there's one plan of salvation. And then we do good works once being justified, that don't contribute to our justification, but demonstrate it. So those are all good applications here. But let me add one more, because I think this is really, really helpful. If you have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, I would say this. You know that you stumble, you trip, and you fall. You say, Mike, you're making an assumption. You're right, I am. I am, because you're a lot like me. I trip, I stumble, I fall. In short, I sin. And if that's you, you're not alone. Every other person is just like that. We don't, you know, justification doesn't equal perfection. Okay, we reject sinless perfectionism. But when that happens, you don't feel very justified, do you? I don't. I, not at all. You feel the disconnect from Jesus' arms. You've grieved the Spirit of God. You know, and I, and I said it last night, and I, I think you know, some of the reasons, I think, one of the reasons that people think that you can lose your salvation, yes, they make the, that argument from going to the, the text of Scripture, but I think just on a very practical level, some people hold that view because that's what it feels like. You feel that way. I, I go through periods of disobedience. I do. I get in the flesh. 
you know, I'm like God's problem child. Like, I still want to go back and live the old, be, the old man rears his ugly head in my life. And when that happens, because I'm his child, he disciplines me. Conviction sets in. I feel awful. I can't disobey in an ultimate sense. I can't just go off. I can't. He won't let me. Just like I'm not letting my older son, Anthony, who's 19 now, he just goes off the rails. I'm coming for him. And God is a better father than I am. So, you know, if we can go off and sin, something's wrong. Something's wrong. We should feel that way. But in those moments, what do we know about our feelings? Deceptive, subjective. You can't rightly interpret your feelings. I, I can't. What do we need? We need to interpret the Word of God. We've got to go to truth. That's where the doctrine of justification needs to kick in. When you're like, I, 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 I'm not justified. no. You're looking at yourself. You're looking within. You're trusting in yourself. You're trying to earn God's favor by what you do or you don't do. It is what Jesus has done. And you don't, you don't obey so that he might love you. No, he loves you already. How do I know? He sent Jesus. And what he accomplished, that it's, you need to trust that. Rather than trusting, you know, putting your trust in what you have or haven't accomplished. Because in the doctrine of justification, you are not guilty, despite how you feel. I'll close right here and we'll get to the Lord's Supper. In the words of Aaron Keyes, God says to you, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter where you've been. Hear me tell you, I forgive. You're not guilty anymore. You're not filthy anymore. I love you. Mercy is yours. You're not broken anymore. You're not captive anymore. I love you. Mercy is yours. Can you believe that this is true? Grace abundant I am giving you. Cleansing deeper than you know. All was paid for long ago. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You are spotless. You are holy. You are faultless. You are whole. You are righteous. Now, can I just stop here for a second? That right there is not true of me. It's not. But in Christ, it is. That's the doctrine of justification. You are righteous, you are blameless, you are pardoned, you are mine. That's what God says in this glorious doctrine. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper.